The spring of 1940 found Hitler's panzer divisions bearing down on some British and Allied troops. They were mopping up the French soldiers and preparing for a siege of Great Britain. The Dutch had surrendered. The Belgians had surrendered. It looked like the Nazi war machine was going to decimate 350,000 soldiers. They were stuck in a little city called Dunkirk. 350,000 troops. The Fuhrer's troops were a few miles away and were getting ready to come in for the kill. There was no hope. The Royal Navy by itself said they could save 10,000 men. They reported to the House of Commons, brace yourself for hard and heavy tidings. But if you know the story of Dunkirk, and yes, it was made into a movie that got most of it right, there was not a disaster. It was not a wiping out of all 350,000 troops. Instead, a bizarre, because that's the only word that works, fleet of ships appeared in the English Channel. 1,000 of them, to be precise. There were fishing trawlers. They were fishing sloops. There were tugboats, lifeboats, and yes, sailboats, pleasure craft, even a ferry, an island ferry named the Gracie Fields. The Americans, America's Cup challenger, the Endeavor, also was a part of it. All of these were manned by civilians, not professional sailors. This ragtag armada saved 338,682 men from the shores of Dunkirk, returning them home as British fighter pilots fought off the German Luftwaffe fighter pilots over the skies. This is one of the most remarkable stories in the history of naval engagements and pretty much of the world. Now, why do I bring this story up? Well, as we continue looking at what our church is like, today we've gone, we've, we've done what the church as a whole looks like, all of our campuses. Today we're getting to our congregation here. So don't take it personal, but we are a ragtag armada of people, not expected, not looking like the professional soldiers and sailors and fighters, but when we come together with the protection of our Royal Air Force, we can accomplish things greater than the saving of 338,000 men. See, God has put us on a rescue operation. It's known as the Great Commission. And that Great Commission is something that we can accomplish, not because we've got the best boat. You remember I said there was a lifeboat? Someone put a lifeboat? They blew it up, got in, and paddled over and got somebody. Not because we have the best boats, not because we have the best weapons, not because we have the best training, but because us combined with the protection of the Lord, we can do amazing things. But we need all of us. Those 338,000 soldiers were saved because of the fact that they all gathered together to save them. So today, we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, there are three things we're going to see. The first is how we're all the same. Okay, so we're all the same. We have the same starting place, same foundation, same beliefs, and so on. But we are also all totally different. And I'll show you how those two work together. And finally, we're going to look and see that we are all dependent. So this is, what's, this, is what this is telling us. One author said that this section is the owner's manual for the church. And so we need to pay close attention to what he says here. And if I go too fast, there's a lot of points in this. Please let me know and I'll, I'll send you my notes. So what's the context? We always want to start with the context so we don't do something out of order. Well, Ephesians is written to the book, written to the city of Ephesus. It's a rather wild city, not as bad as Corinth, but you can see it from there. And it's a city that Paul spends a lot of time in. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about doctrine. It's all about what God did. The second part is all about duty, what our duty, what our response should be. So if you're going to put it in one way, you would say the first half is about our faith and what it's in. 
And the second half is our life in response to the faith. See, in Ephesians 1 through 3, we see the good news. The good news that God, who is alienated from us by our sin, has sent his son to bridge the gap. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. We talked about it two weeks ago. That Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He had all of our sins laid upon him on the cross. And the Lord accepted that sacrifice. So now we can be blameless in God's eyes. Ephesians 4 through 6 takes all of us humans and our disordered desires and our disordered relationships, and he tells us how to bring them into order, into unified humanity. So this is how we're going to look at it. So our first point, we are all the same. We are all the same. Ephesians 1, sorry, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 this is, God, uh, this is Paul saying, God wants us unified, and then he's going to tell us how we're unified. So here's what it says. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is in prison in Rome, we believe at this point, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what he's saying is, live out your calling Love your family and keep the peace. So how are we the same? Well, the first thing we see in verse 1 is that we, are, we all share the same gospel. We see that right at the beginning. He says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. See, the thing about the gospel is it's not just enough to know there's a gospel out there. You have to go, that gospel's for me and I want to live under that. I don't want that gospel just to be some, something out there. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus died for sins. It doesn't matter. What matters is, did he die for your sins? Are you under his covering? So he says, this is who you are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. Now he says, live it out. And he uses this word worthy, which is the word axios in the Greek. It's where we get the word axiom from. An axiom is one of those words that gets thrown around, but what does it mean? What it means is to be of equal weight. This is a math term, so I'll lose some of you right here, and that's fine. It's a math term, and this is where if you do one thing on this side of the equation, you have to do it on this side. That's called an axiom. And so what Paul is saying is, on this side of the equation, you are saved because of Jesus Christ, he says, now on the other side, how we live it out should be as close as we could possibly get to the equal. Now, we're never going to get there because what Jesus did on the cross is infinitely greater than the best that we can do. But that doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't intend to go that way. One author wrote, he said, Christ has done so much for me. The rest of my life is a PS to his great work. So how do we walk worthily? Right here, Paul's point in verses 1 through 16 is about the unity inside the church. Later on, he talks about purity and he talks about relationships and he gets into marriage and other things like that. But here, the focus is on unity. One of the ways we here at New Life try to do this, try to help each other do this, is we enter into what's called a church covenant. A church covenant is an agreement between us with us that we're gonna do certain things, that we're gonna hold each other accountable. It's similar to like what we would say in a marriage. Every year when we gather together uh, for our yearly meeting, it'll be in December this year, we approve the budget, we, we talk about, we, we vote on elders, we talk about things for the next year. We also, all five congregations, get together and we all say this together. And we are saying we're holding each other accountable to it. And this is what the church covenant says. On the basis that we serve a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, we joyfully resolve to enter into a covenant community with one another. We promise, by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, and then here's the things we promise to do, to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin, and walking by faith in the newness of life. So the first thing we promise is that we're going to live under the gospel. We're going to repent of our sins. We're going to pursue faith and newness of life. The second thing we promise, we promise to care for and promote both the purposes and the unity of God's church through regular church attendance, corporate and private prayer, ministerial service, 
financial giving, and by submitting to the church's spiritual authority. So the first one is your private life. The second one is us together as a whole. We, pr- we promise to meet together. We promise to pray together. We promise to pray privately. We promise to give offerings and tithe. We promise to serve each other. Third, we promise to commit ourselves in tangible relationships in small groups to fulfilling the one another commands found throughout the Scripture. This committing ourselves to tangible relationships means make friends in the church, care for each other. And I have to say, New Life Gladstone does a really good job of this. We do a really good job. Could we do better? Absolutely. But we do a really good job of caring for each other. And lastly, we promise to passionately participate in God's kingdom-bringing mission by serving, influencing, and evangelizing the lost people and communities around us. So this is the mission. So if you were to think about it, this is very similar to what we're doing. We started with kind of the, the big picture of the gospel, and then we moved, next week we'll move into life groups, which is the second to last one. Today we're talking about meeting together, and then we're going to talk, we are going to eventually talk about the individual. So these are all interwoven. Yes, we have a walk with the Lord, but we do it in a group, and one of the best ways to do that is by joining a small group, a Bible study, or a life group, because that then helps us to get out and be evangelists to our community. So this is the promise we make. We have the same gospel. We have the same goal in mind. The second thing we share is we share the same love, verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul goes through and he says, I want you to do all of this, walk this way, but you're going to do it with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. Now, these are some interesting words here. These are not the words that pop up in popular culture, right? If you are loved by someone, they make you feel good, or you feel better with them, or they look good on your arm, or they bring your status up. In Christianity, it's not that way. Loving someone is about putting yourself second. It's about thinking about the other above you. So Paul defines love this way. He says we are to be humble. In Greek culture, which is the culture that Paul's writing to, humility is a put-down. If you called somebody humble, they wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I am, and then lose it, right? But your humble would be, oh, don't call me that. How dare you? Call me prideful, please. Humility is an attitude of thinking low of yourself and high of others. Now, this is not self-hatred or self-loathing, but it's seeing yourself accurately and then expecting others to be higher than you. Apostle Paul says that there is no unity without humility. Gentleness. Now, gentleness does not mean weakness. You know, and it used to, some of the older translations would use the word meekness. But again, meekness is a synonym in our culture for weakness. That's not what this is. Gentleness is strength under control. It's not demanding your own rights. You know, it's, it's like having that one or two-year-old that's crying and, you, and wants to eat, and you're going, no, no, it's my turn. I'm eating first, then I'll feed you. Stop crying. That's the opposite of gentleness. Gentleness is going, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to care for your needs first before I take care of mine. You see how all of these build into unity. Patience. The Greek word here means long-tempered. Now, when you hear that, does that mean you throw a longer temper tantrum than the average person? No, that's that's not what this means. It means that it takes a long time for you to lose your temper. The word that probably fits this better but gets lost in our lack of vocabulary culture is the word forbearance. Forbearance. This means you don't take offense when someone offends you. You don't take it personal when someone does something bad to you. This is the patience that we see here. Again, this is what leads to humility, or sorry, unity. The fourth one, bearing with one another in love. Literally, it's tolerating one another with love. Now, this is not tolerating like, oh, okay, I'll love you again. No, this is deference. This is saying, I'm putting your needs ahead of mine, and the motivation behind it is love. This means we give each other space 
to make mistakes. This means that we're not the first to criticize. This means that we are slow to be nasty to people or to call people out, but to tolerate and build in love. And this is something that we need to do. You know, there are certain sins in our culture, and by I mean our culture, I mean Christian culture, that if someone says, I'm struggling with this, we would look down on them. And that's not the way the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the place where you say, I'm struggling with this, somebody please help. Because we're all struggling with sins. And we need to be able to confess that and have them out in the open because only when sin is out in the open is it put to death. When it's hidden and you try to deal with it on your own, it grows and we don't want that. So this unity, this unity takes people that are so different and makes them one. This, this unity does not come from programs. We can't have a get-together and we all say the same thing like at our, our gathering in December, and that means we're unified. The unity comes from one place. It comes from the Spirit because if you know your fruits of the Spirit, you know that each of the things Paul just listed are because the Spirit's working in us. Spurgeon says this, the text bids us endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, but it does not tell us to endeavor to maintain the unity of evil, the unity of superstition, or the unity of spiritual tyranny. The unity of evil is what we are to break down by every weapon our hands can grasp. And we do that by the unity of the Spirit, which we are to maintain and foster. We dare not commit the sin of quenching the Spirit, even though it were in a view of promoting unity. And what he's saying is, we chase after the Spirit, and He's the one that builds us up in these so we can have unity. See, unity is not something that just happens. You just don't throw people in a room. You guys should know this, right? You don't throw a bunch of people in a room, and they come out unified. If anything, you throw 12 people in a room, and they come out with 15 opinions, right? That's the way it works. But that's not the way it works in God's church. We are to be like a garden. We are to cultivate unity. What that means is there are going to be times we're going to bump into each other, but the fact, the overriding fact is that we are a part of God's church softens out those differences. We need to have deliberate effort. We know what happens. We see this in our families when there is no deliberate effort. Because unity doesn't just happen even if you share the same last name. Husbands and wives can drift apart. Children become estranged. Siblings hate one another. Unity does not just happen. So this takes us back to that first point of the covenant. The very first point is I have to be chasing after the Lord. I have to have a relationship. I have to submit under the gospel because that is what makes me ready to be able to be unified with my brother or sister in Christ. Only when we are humble are we able to see that. Only when we are patient and gentle are we able to see that. And that comes from sitting under what Christ did on the cross. You can't be proud when you have the God of the universe dying on the cross. You can't be impatient when God is patient with you and the countless times he's taught you that same lesson. You can't be harsh with someone when God is gentle with you. And how long has he bared with us? See, this is the picture that we're meant to have. And before we go, wait a sec, you know, but we're really divided in 2023. Not to mention what's going to happen in 2024 with that election coming up, right? We're divided, and, and, and Paul just doesn't understand. Well, I'm just going to call that out as baloney, because the Apostle Paul's world was even more divided than ours. I know that's hard to imagine. But his world was divided between Jew and Gentile, and they did not meet. They did not get together. Rich and poor was even farther apart than now. Slave and free, male and female, and that's not to mention families and tribes and nations. This was a divided place. And yet Paul says, you know what? There is a unity that defies all categorization, and that comes from Jesus Christ in our lives. Not because we worship in this building, not because we've sworn an allegiance, but because we are covered by his blood. So the first great truth we see is that God is the God who heals, and he has done the work. The second great truth is that we need to see who we are and respond accordingly. 
So we share so many things. Now look at verse four. Verse four says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We are one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We share the same identity. We share the same identity. Believers are one in body, so our unity is experienced through this gathering right here. We are one body. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the church is a new creation, and in bringing her into being, God has done something entirely new as he did with the creation of the universe. There was no church prior to Jesus' death on the cross, and then, boom, he made this church. So you see the argument here. He starts it right off. There is one body, not there ought to be one body, not there should be one body, not we hope someday we'll have a body. No, he says, you are a body. We've been made a body. We've been created as a body, and we are to live that way. The gospel logic is powerful. Paul is saying, you are a body, so act like it. Second thing we see is the believers are one in spirit, so our unity is experienced in the Holy Spirit who activates our fellowship. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the power that allows us to do the things that we're called to do. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. He puts us in the body of Christ. And so now, we as believers in this room have more in common with a believer living in Nigeria right now than we do with our non-Christian atheist friend down the street. Because our lives are so intertwined with Christ through the Holy Spirit, we have more in common with someone on the other side of the world who doesn't speak our language. Which is amazing to think about, that the Spirit can do that. So at this point, you see, we're one body and we have one spirit. So why is it, why are we so disunified as Christians? Why is that? Why can't we all get together? And I want to explain it this way. There's two churches at work in the world right now. And I'm going to call one the invisible church. And I'm going to call the other the visible church. The invisible church is all true believers. And by true believers, I mean those who have committed their lives to Christ and it's evident and it's God, Holy Spirit's taken root in the hearts from the time of the Apostle Paul to now to all the way in the future. That's the invisible church. And we, don't, we can't see it. We can see the, the, the fruit of it, but we don't know. The other group is called the visible church. These are the people that we see in front of us who say, I believe in Jesus. And that's all we can see. Sometimes we can see fruit, sometimes we can see things that look like, but we don't really know. And the problem is, is that the churches in the world are full of people that are in the visible church, but not in the invisible church. What does that mean? What that, what that means is there are people, maybe even in this room, who say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. You say it, but you don't believe it. And the way you don't believe it is you aren't living it out. It's not what you live on the day-to-day -day basis. And you may go, wait a sec, okay, Pastor John, I'm having a hard time tracking with this. How does this work? Well, let me show you. In the Old Testament, Abraham was told he was going to be blessed, Right? God said, I'm going to bless your lineage. So Abraham only had one kid, and they just blessed that one kid? No, Abraham had two kids, didn't he? First one was Ishmael. Ishmael was not a child of the blessing, but he was a part of Abraham's family. The blessing went to Isaac. And we see this throughout the Bible, that there's a big group, but then there's the group with the blessing. And in this room, praise be to God, I think there's mostly invisible church here. But this is a place for you to go, okay, am I really believing what I say I believe? Am I really, in my heart, pursuing God like I am supposed to? Because if I'm not, that could be evidence that you're not a part of this invisible church. We don't care whether you join this church or not. You can go to any number of churches in Gladstone and the surrounding area. What matters is that you go from being in the visible church to being in God's family, also known as the invisible church, the one that we can't count that's going to be celebrating for all of eternity. And this is what we want to do. We want to go from being pretenders who trick ourselves into thinking we are 
to being God's children. So we share the same identity if we are in Christ. The next thing we see, the fourth thing, is we share the same testimony. We share the same testimony. And this is where Paul, you can just kind of see him rolling. He says, we have the same hope, we have the same Lord, we have the same faith, we have the same baptism. This hope is experienced in thinking of our glorious future. We're not, we're not living our best life now. No, we're going to live that for all of eternity. We have the same Lord. We are united because of Christ to whom we belong. We have the same faith. This means that this is what gets us entrance into the family, is I have put my faith, my trust, my everything in Christ. He is the reason I can stand before the Lord. If you were to say, someone were to say, what makes you a Christian? Your response is, only by the blood of Jesus Christ am I a Christian. Nothing else works. Not my church attendance, not my tithing, not my offerings, not my following all the rules. Whatever that may be, it is I am in Christ. And so because I'm in Christ, I then follow whatever he says because he's my Lord. And we show that through baptism. This baptism, which is the word immersion, which is to be put into water. This is the unity to show I'm a part of the family. And when we do baptisms, we say, you know, buried in baptism and risen to new life. You're a part of a new family. So this is our testimony. And finally, we see we share the same family. Verse 6. Believers are one in God and our unity is experienced because God has become our father. Yes, God is the creator of everything, so technically by that instance, he's the father of everyone, like the church signs around here will say, God's father is everyone. But really, to be a part of God's family, we have to be grafted in, we have to be brought in through the death of Jesus Christ, and so now we are a part of his family. Ephesians 3, a little bit earlier in the book, says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Look at the family benefits here, right? Not only are you brought in, you're not at the kid table. You're not the black sheep of Jesus's family. No, you're brought right in and you get his name. Not only that, look at all of the things he gives us, knowledge and strength and love. And greatest of all, he fills us with the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit comes and fills us up. If I adopted you into my family, you would just get a bunch of books, and that would be it. But in God's family, you get God. You get Him. If we realized how big this was, it would change how we do everything. To go see that we went from not a part of the family to his beloved is huge. It should change all that we do. So we are all the same. Now the sin that we get tempted with here is believing that we don't have to accept people that are different than us. That we don't have to, that we, we just, you know, we have to do our own thing and whatever. But the unity here is unity in Christ. So some of us are going to look and talk and act differently, but what unites us is Christ. Another sin that we have plays right into our second point, which is everyone has to be just like me. You all have to have the same gifts that I have, or the same likes, or the same favorite Bible passage, or whatever. But here we see that we are all different. So our second point is we are all different. Verse 7 but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So how do we re regard these differences? The very first thing we see is it's Christ's generosity. Okay, the word gift there means graced. Okay, the, the Romans 12.6 has the same word, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If that was translated, having graced us with grace given to us. This is, we've been given a free gift. 
So these differences are God's gift. He means for us to be different. Next thing we see is that we have differences that are coming from Christ's authority. Look at verses 8 through 10. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul's saying, our grace, our gifts have a supernatural origin. Now, this means that God himself came down, the God-man came and brought his authority to bear on our sins, took care of it, and then went back to heaven, and his going back to heaven, like he promised, unleashes the Holy Spirit on this world, which we are reaping the rewards of now. Now, this descent here, don't get confused with the, the, the idea that maybe Jesus went to hell and preached to people in hell. That's a whole different discussion. You know, I'd love to talk to you about it. We can talk out in the foyer afterwards. Um, there's some other passages that seem to imply that. That's not what's going on here. Instead, what Paul is saying is if Jesus went up to heaven, he first had to come down from heaven. And when he came down, he was here in the muck with us to make us right, and then he ascended back to heaven. Now, this seems like a bunny trail to me. When I first read it, I was like, okay, Paul, you're just like chasing a bunny on this one. Actually, it's kind of the main point, is that Jesus' authority transferred into his sacrifice, and then he takes his authority back to heaven, where he sits in place of us, which is amazing to think about. He has such authority that he was the only one that could die the way he did for us. And he goes back to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, which this morning as I was reading this again blew my mind in that the fact that he got to go back into heaven means that all the sins that were laid on him on the cross, all of yours and all of mine that were on him in the cross, that price was paid fully, and he didn't take a single one of our sins up to heaven with him. Amen. How awesome is that? I had never caught that before, that if Jesus had even one more of my sins on him, he wouldn't be able to go back to heaven. But he goes to heaven, the sins are gone, our sins are wiped away if we have our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is getting at. He ascends back up there. He's at the right hand of God. He is the one that says, no, that's my kid. They are not judged. No, that's my sibling. We are now related to Christ. One of the authors I read a lot of, uh, he wrote this about this passage. He says, but then Jesus burst up in exaltation so that now he fills the whole universe as a conquering king and he joyously, joyously lavishes gifts upon us children. He bestows such abundant gifts to his church and gives his people power to fulfill all of their gifts. This is where Jesus is now. So the next thing we do with our differences is we need to see that they are intended for Christ's purposes. Intended for Christ's purposes. Verses 12 through 15. Verse 11 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let's look at verse 11 first. It says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So what this is talking about here, apostles and prophets. The apostles are those who were chosen by Jesus to be his inner ring. The prophets were the ones that were pointing forward to Jesus coming. Paul refers, and in the Greek, apostles and prophets are both in the past tense. He's saying, these guys have already done their work. Their work is done. The truths are laid down first by the apostles and prophets. He's saying that there are no apostles and prophets after this period. But the next two evangelists and shepherds teachers are in the present tense, as in Paul saying, these are the things that are happening right now. And so let me, let me show you kind of a picture that helps me understand what evangelists and what shepherds are doing. The first one is evangelists. Evangelists are the obstetricians of the church. 
Obstetrician is a doctor who helps a woman through her pregnancy and to birth and then a little bit after. Having worked in a hospital and having witnessed the birth of my three kids, births are not clean affairs. They are not pretty in any stretch of the imagination. However, they are priceless and they are beautiful. Some of our births as new creations were a hot mess. We were not living the good life and following all the commands of God and then we just added Jesus on. No, we were actively running the other direction. And at some point, someone came alongside us, maybe several someones, and gave us the gospel. Those were the obstetricians to pull us in to the new birth. Because ultimately, the best evangelists are you all. You can speak into people's lives better than I can. So the evangelists are the ones who are there at the beginning. The shepherds, the word shepherd here is the word pastor in the Greek. This would be in our church, this would be our elders and myself. This is the pastor who teaches. These are the pediatricians of the church. A pediatrician is someone who cares for children. It's our job to help you grow so that you can go off on your own. I remember when I was a kid, I had one doctor growing up. His name was Dr. Springer. And he was the only doctor I knew, but he was a pediatrician. And I remember a conversation that my mom and I had when I had gotten to a certain age, and she said, we need to find a new doctor. And I was like, no, Dr. Springer is my doctor, like the only doctor. She's like, no, he only works with kids. No, he works with me. And she said, no, we have to find you another doctor. I mean, because how ridiculous would it be for me as a 40-something going to a pediatrician for all of my healthcare needs? And then after I'm done going, Dr. Springer, can I have a lollipop? I was a good patient. I was a really good patient. We would go, that guy's got some problems. Probably fit in pretty well in some places in our world. But pastors and elders must be teachers. And this is the point of what we're doing. We, we, we are to come aside you, beside you and help you grow into maturity so that when you become mature, you can do the same for others. Pastors and elders must be teachers. This is what it means to be a pastor. Now, all these gifts are different. All these gifts have certain goals in mind. But the goal for all of us is to minister where we're at and grow up to maturity. Look at verse 12. These four gifts, these four groups, were to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The goal here is to equip you to help guide you into growing the body of Christ, to grow the fellowship here. Now, we, we provide coffee every morning. Do we do that because churches must have coffee? Is that like in somewhere in the Bible? Or is it so that the people that set up the coffee can cross off their good works for the day? No, we do that to facilitate growth and fellowship at the church. We want you sharp when you're talking to each other and fellowshipping, right? The key here is the ministry that happens in the church, the fellowship and growth that happens in the church is facilitated by the pastors and the elders and each of you so that we all grow together. We think that ministry is something that pastors do. While for sure it is, we think that ministry is something that elders do, and yes, it absolutely is, but it's also what all of you are called to do as well. We are to equip you, the saints, right there, verse 12, for the work of ministry. So you can minister right where you're at. What does this look like? Your neighbor's having a rough day, you go over and pray with them. Maybe you take them a meal. Maybe you invite them to church. Maybe you tell them of the love of Jesus. That is ministry. When you go to a Bible study and you're sitting in that small group and you share something the Lord told you, that's ministry. Because you know what happens? There's somebody who maybe came to that Bible study that day and they're going, you know, I'm the only person that's struggling with this. I have a problem, I have a sin, I have anxiety, I have money issues, I have husband, wife issues, whatever it is, and they come to that small group and they hear you share and they go inside, they're doing this. I'm not the only one, yeah! And that's the way it's supposed to be. 
When you lead a small group or you host a life group, these are forms of ministry. They're forms of care for each other. But it's so not limited to that. Look at what these verses say. It's our job to equip you to do the work of ministry. The work is done by you all, not me and the elders. I'm here to help and to prompt you. I am a ministry prompter. And we provide all sorts of places for you to do that. Some of the examples of what people are already doing here at church, we've got people running around replacing light bulbs and pulling weeds and mowing lawns and setting up and tearing down rooms. We've got children's ministry, doing lessons, walking kids to the bathroom multiple times, but same kid. (laughs) Setting up rooms and tearing down rooms. We've got people that play with toddlers and hold sleeping babies. That sounds like heaven to me right there. Two Bible study leaders, both men and women, who show up and just ask questions. We've got worship teams that come all the way from Wilsonville to come and play here and from West Lynn to play here. We have a tech team that you only notice when something doesn't go right, but they're always back there working their tails off. And it goes on and on and on. And we would love more opportunities for people to minister here. Because our job as leaders is to help you grow into finding ways to take care of other people's. Pastors and elders are the supply line. You all are the front line. Again in verse 12, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the goal in all of this is to mature. The goal in all of this is to mature. Some maturity is knowledge, but it always shows itself in action. Now let's not get hung up on verse 13, ladies. It says mature manhood, okay? This is talking, yes, to the guys, but it's also including you as well. But for a second, I wanna talk to the guys. How are you doing, men? How are we doing on this? Does mature fit with where you're at with your walk with the Lord? Or are you the second most mature member in your family behind your wife? Now, single men, don't think you're getting off on this one. Just because you're single, you're like, I'm number one. But if you get married, you go to number two like that. This is not how it's supposed to be. Men, we are to be maturing in our walks with the Lord. We set the tone for our family. I won't say that we, set the, 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 we don't set the ceiling, but it's pretty darn close to that. Praise be to God that there have been times where ungodly men's ceilings have been busted by young men who love the Lord. But this cannot keep happening, men. We cannot melt away in the face of lack of growth. We cannot think we have nothing to say. In fact, we cannot stop just because we don't feel like it. Think about how many times men would have just stopped doing something if they didn't feel like it. Oh, I don't feel like storming Normandy to to win D-Day. We'll just stay behind. Men, it's time to be courageous and make it the way it's supposed to be. Many of our wives have become the de facto spiritual leaders of our family. This cannot stay this way. Now, men, it does start with you on your own. That's what the first part of our covenant was. Live under the gospel, rise up under the gospel. But the second part was we gotta be in community. The lie of our culture for men is you can do it on your own. You don't need any help. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Men, you need other men. So we are facilitating that. It's been a passion of mine from day one, but things got in the way and we didn't have the time and the energy to do it, but it is starting now and it is game on. So men, this Saturday, we have a fall kickoff breakfast. Kickoff has nothing to do with football, even though I kind of like that it's in there. This means we're kicking off our men's ministry. It's starting, it's game time, it's time to get going. The following week on September 21st at 6 a.m., we are doing men's Bible study. 6 a.m. is early, yes. 6 a.m. is really inconvenient, yes. But you've been pretty convenient for a long time. Now it's time to pick one day a week to come be with men. I'll keep you for no more than an hour, and it will be well worth it. 
And if you don't believe that, talk to some of the ladies who are in women's Bible study and they'll tell you how worth it it is. So, end of segue. Now back to the, that was this the side. Now we're back to the middle. Oswald Chambers writes, God never destroys his own work. He removes what would pervert it. Maturity is the stage of life where you're brought under the complete control of God. Cutting away all of the things that get in the way, we need to move to maturity. This is a quiet confidence that God is in control. Setting up, caring for others, cleaning up, doing all the things in this building to facilitate our fellowship, this is helping others grow to that fullness. And it's how we love each other. See, here's the thing. Caring for this building is how people love you. So every morning when you show up here and there's coffee and there's connection cards and the chairs are lined up and the slide's ready to go and the music's ready to go, this is them saying, I love you. But even more than that, it's us saying, I love Christ. Because what does it say? We are all the body of Christ. So sweet deal. We love each other. We're loving Christ. We point each other to Christ. We're loving Christ. This is what we do, and this is how we do it. The sin that sneaks in here that we have to fight against is thinking that we are inadequate for the job. Someone else needs to do it, and that's a lie. You are what we need. You are who we need. You are here on purpose, and we see this in our final point, and this one's the shortest of them all. We are all dependent. We are all dependent. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the Christ, who is the head, who into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. So the first thing we see is we are dependent on Christ. Speaking the truth in love literally is truthing in love. The word speak is not there. It's, this just means we are, we are truthing everybody. That means in our actions, in our words, in our smiles, in our looks, everything is done in love. Speaking the truth in love. Loving everybody in love. When we do that, the Spirit is free to do His work. We're to grow up. We are to be the ones. Look, it says we are to grow up. Not the pastors to pull you up. Not the elders are to kick you until you get up. No, it says we are to build ourselves up. And we do this through following what we see here. This is the core of what we do. And what is our, what is our, our, our picture of what it means to grow to maturity? There is one who is mature, and that is the one we're to follow. A.W. Tozer has a, uh, an analogy where he says, imagine a room with 100 pianos. And you take the first piano, pull out a tuning fork, and you tune it. And then you take the second piano and you tune it to the first. And a third piano and you tune it to the second. And on all the way till all 100 pianos are tuned. Guess what? They're not all in tune. They all play the same note and there's going to be discord and disharmony. Why? Because after every tuning it gets a little bit off. The only way for every single piano to be perfectly in tune is to have the tuning fork be the measurement. Your elders are phenomenal. We're, we try to be godly men. We try to point you to the Lord, but we are poor examples compared to Christ. And so we are to take Christ and have him be our example. The maturity that we want to reach up to is Christ. You know, you think about it this way. There's a sin here that comes after this, and, 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 and the sin is, well, we can do it if we just have this program, or we can do it if we just do this strategy, or we move to this time, or we add this thing in. No, the only thing we need to be successful is Christ. He is the one we are to be dependent on. And finally, we are to be dependent on each other. In the New Testament, there are lots of one another's, and most of them are directed to the church. We are to love one another. Many times we look at pastors and think, oh, they're better equipped, or they seem to like it more, or, or whatever. They should be the ones doing the work. But that's, in fact, not the case. If you're going to wait for me to come along and do it, I'm limited to 24 hours a day. 
I am called to equip you so that all of you together, all 2,600 hours per day that you have is now multiplied to minister in our world. What would that look like if each of you used two hours a day to reach your communities, to reach each other, to care for your neighbors in schools and workplaces and marketplaces and gyms and go and spread the love of Christ. Look how great that's going to be. And the lie that we all think, the sin that sneaks in and maybe even sneaking in right now, is that, well, I don't really have anything to add. I don't really have any marketable skills. For this reason, Paul says, trust in Christ and do what's in front of you with the person next to you. Because see, here's the thing, and I'll finish with this. Ministry, according to the Apostle Paul, is not what I'm doing right here. It's not life groups. It is what happens in life when we point people to Christ. It looks like this. It's like two moms putting aside a rivalry and comparison of each other to love and serve one another. It's like a young man refusing to tell a dirty joke for a cheap cheap laugh and instead uses words to build someone up. It looks like a person punching numbers into a spreadsheet from nine to five as an act of devotion to the Lord. It looks like a child obeying his or her parents. It looks like a man laboring to help his wife spiritually flourish even as he overlooks her criticism. Looks like a wife choosing to honor her husband, even when he has nothing that deserves honoring. Looks like inviting a visitor to a meal after church. Looks like sharing the gospel with a neighbor. Looks like sending an email to encourage someone who is discouraged. None of these actions look glamorous. None of these actions are listed in the book of ministry, pastoral ministry. You're not going to go in there and email to a friend who's having a rough day. But for Paul, this is real ministry. The pastors and elders, our job is to teach and to preach and to fuel you up to go do this ministry. Remember, we are the supply line. You are the front line. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and recognize that we are all the same. We are all sinners in need of your grace. We recognize that we are all different. We have all sorts of gifts. Some of us, it it seems like the last thing on the earth that we would want to do is to teach kids or to get up and teach in a small group. And others of us, Lord, uh, we would love to do that. So, Lord, we have gifts all across the gamut. And, Lord, help us to see those gifts as what they are, as the opportunity to minister to those around us. But, Lord, help us not to forget that we are dependent on your Son and his Spirit, and we're dependent on each other. And that when we gather together, your Spirit is on display and gives us the opportunity to love and care for each other with the unity that defies all of the world's categories. Lord, this is the church that we want to see. This is the church that we want to be a a part of. And so, Lord, I pray for that. I pray that we would grow into that, that our maturity would match your son, and that we would be able to do that. Lord, help us to broaden our view of ministry to include all the things that you put before us this next week. Lord, we look forward to how you're going to use them. In your name, amen.